You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thanks for downloading our show today. I have a great guest for you, Monsignor Andrew Baker of Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And we're going to talk about seminary education, recruitment, development, a variety of topics, and how that has shaped and changed a little bit during COVID-19. Monsignor Baker was on our podcast originally way back in episode number four. He is a personal friend of mine from the Diocese of Allentown, and I'm just so grateful and happy to have him on our show. But before we go there, today, as you know, this week marks the beginning of Advent. And Advent, as you know, is a time of preparation to welcome the coming of Christ. It's also a new liturgical year. And amidst all the craziness of the month of December, we're just coming off of Thanksgiving, we're moving into the holiday shopping season, this is going to be unlike any Christmas any of us have experienced in the past, we all know that. And there's a lot of pressure. There there certainly is a lot of pressure around budgets, around numbers, around really making things work. And so I thought that I would offer to you just a little bit of an Advent reflection I had a profound loss over the last couple of weeks, and I wanted to share with you some thoughts about the readings and about preparing the way. So here we go. So this is the first week of Advent, and there are a number of themes to explore in this past weekend's readings as Advent begins. And the first reading from Isaiah calls us to confess our sins and hope for better days. And the second reading, Paul's thanksgiving to God, is upbeat about the future. And in the gospel, Jesus warns us against being complacent because the end is coming a lot sooner than we expect. And today, I'd like to talk with you about being prepared. Have you ever been to the airport and watched people who just got off a plane? They come through security and they see their families who are waiting for them. It's always a beautiful scene of reunification, but every scene is just a little bit different, isn't it? You can sometimes tell something about the relationship based on how the greeting happens. You have a mom who gets off the plane after a business trip and her family and the little kids are waiting for her and they're screaming and jumping up and down. What does that look like? Right there, they're excited. They can't wait to hug their mommy. And the same thing can happen certainly when grandparents or a spouse gets off the plane. A college student comes home from a semester at school. Maybe it's a loved one that you haven't seen for a very long time. It's just a moment of love and joy in that time of reuniting that really can't be put into words. Then sometimes you see a different scene when maybe there's just a smile when the person comes through security or a handshake, and other times it's just a simple word of hello. Every scene's just a little bit different, and oftentimes it comes down to the kind of relationship that you have with the other person. So I lost someone to COVID-19 over the last couple of weeks, and he was very close to me. His name was Father Dennis. And he was an Augustinian priest who I knew as a boy, and then later worked for as an adult in parish ministry. He married my wife and I and baptized all of our kids. In many more ways, which I won't go into now, he played a real pivotal role in my life. And over the past couple of weeks, I reflected on many of the life lessons that he taught me. One of the things he said that made a big impact on me was the day that he was installed as the pastor of a new parish. He told his new parishioners at Mass, I did not come to bring Jesus to this community, but to find him. Let me just repeat that. I did not come to bring Christ to this parish, but to find him. 
Father Dennis was a humble person. He knew that Christ lived in the hearts of the people of God and that if he could find the person of Christ in them, that together they could build the kingdom of God here on earth. And when you think about that statement of finding Christ in someone, isn't it very different to find Jesus in another person? You have to get to know that person. It speaks of a relationship. And we only come to know one another if we engage each other in community. And so when we think about this week's readings, quote, beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come, we're reminded that the clock is ticking. Spend some time with Jesus this Advent. Get to know the person of Christ, and perhaps you too can find him in the people that you know, and together you can build the kingdom of God. I know that when Father Dennis got off his plane to arrive in heaven, Jesus was waiting for him at security with a huge hug to welcome him home. Father Dennis spent his life looking for and getting to know Jesus through the people that were in his life and encouraging them to share their gifts with others. So, beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. Go find the person of Christ in the people in your life. Now, let's get to work. On today's show, we're joined by Monsignor Andrew Baker, who is in his sixth year as the rector of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and he is the vice president of the university. Monsignor Baker was ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Allentown in 1991. He served in various parishes, including as pastor of the Cathedral of St. Catherine of Siena in Allentown. Monsignor Baker has taught high school students, served as a Catholic university chaplain, and is a faculty member of St. Charles Seminary and on the Congregation for Bishops in Rome. And today, Monsignor Baker shares with us his philosophy and strategy for running a seminary, especially amid the pandemic, and how he markets to seminarians from all around the United States. And so, without further ado, here is our conversation. Well, Monsignor Baker, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to see you again today. Great to be here, Jim. Thank you again for another invitation to come back. This time, of course, it's not just audio, it's also video. That's right. Yes, live and in video. Absolutely. Well, it's recorded for most of our people, but yeah, absolutely. It's great to see you. You know, I, this uh, maybe we could start a little bit about, uh, you know, the elephant in the room, so much going on with COVID and, you know, all of us working very differently. The last time I saw you, we met personally there in your office and, right. you know, now we're having the same kind of conversation via Zoom. But tell us a little bit about how has life been at the seminary? And I'm, I'm sure there's been lots of changes and uh, we've all been kind of rolling with it, you know, kind of throughout this process. Yeah, I have to admit, it's probably a little bit more normal than I would have expected, Formation and priestly formation, really any kind of formation, but I think especially for priestly formation, is best done in person. We've learned that. That doesn't mean that we couldn't do things, and we did do things remotely starting you know, mid-March or so of, of last year. We continue to be very careful about making sure that all the seminarians are you know, washing their hands and wearing their masks and washing their distance. And we've had to adjust a lot of things in seminary formation, but in-person is still what's preferred. So we try to do our best to get everything in place so as to make it as conducive as possible to something in-person. But things are different now. We can't have visitors except on a very restricted you know, basis on campus. Sometimes the seminarians, especially those that are in pre-theology and are taking courses at the university, because we're connected with Mount St. Mary's University, they might have a class in which they're taking half the week remotely and the other half in person. You know, they've split the class into half. We've had seminarians too that 
have gotten sick and we we're just trying to make sure that they don't have COVID-19. And, and so during that time of quarantine, they're also coming into class, if you will, remotely. We've got new technology. We've got hand sanitizers all over the place. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we've got a lot of things in place that just had to change. But I, I just want to kind of emphasize the fact that we've done so to try to make it as in-person as we possibly can. Sure. And, you know, we talked about that a few years ago when we were last, you know, together, just the importance of that in, in not only through the marketing, when you're first bringing a young man through that process of understanding and formation, and now certainly through his education. How about some of your different marketing? I would imagine that you did a lot of stuff remotely when you marketed to different dioceses, but at the same time, I know you also like to be there and front and center and in person in front of the different bishops that you work with and different folks. How has that been? Yeah, well, it hasn't been as in person as we possibly could. Sure. However, today was the first time we've actually had a vocation director come and visit us in person. Oh. Uh, he's a local vocation director, so he doesn't have to stay overnight. He can only, you know, he only has to be here for a few hours. Mm-hmm. But we, um, we've been trying to stay in contact as much as possible with those vocation directors, even though the, the in-person is limited, the same as with the bishops. But I must say, over the last several months, I've sent out either more emails or more videos, an e-letter. The communication I found, we had to take care of it even more now than ever before, because there's always a lot of questions. But at the same time, without that personal contact, you still need to fill the gap a bit with information, with some contact. And at least give people the uh, you know the, the sense, especially our vocation directors and our bishops, that they're very much still our partners in, in all of this. We haven't forgotten about them, in other words. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that's true. What is the big season for recruitment? I would imagine that a lot happens for you in the spring. And when COVID kind of broke initially, it was in the spring. And so did that hamper your enrollment, your marketing efforts? And how did you compensate for that? It's really the diocese itself that does the recruiting and then the, the bishop decides to send them to the mount. Sure. And that process does culminate in the spring. Yeah. So as far as trying to get the seminarians that the bishop is assigned to the mount to start the application process, much of that was delayed because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Sometimes part of the application process had to be delayed, such as the uh, psychological assessment, for instance. Mm-hmm. Sure. That was delayed just simply because they couldn't get in to see the psychologist for those kinds of assessments. It worked out. Our schedule was delayed a bit. We had to work a little bit harder a bit later in the summer. But praise God, we were able to welcome 47 new seminarians. Wow, that's tremendous. I was a little. I was really wondering whether or not we'd have a big dip, only because it's difficult. It yeah. would, would have been difficult just to get them to initially decide to come to the seminary and then come to the Mount. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've had one of our largest new seminary in class that I've had since I've been here, which is now five, now going on six years. Well, praise God. That's wonderful. I, I know that we've talked about the fact that young men, when they're thinking about uh, vocation, it starts at home. It starts with their home diocese and, and that conversation with their local vocations director. When they get to the point where they're ready to make a decision about Mount St. Mary's, do you find that a lot of them come and visit you in person? And does that make kind of a deciding factor in their discernment process? A few of them may, yes. Yeah. Uh, the majority actually don't. They oh. usually have contact and understanding of the Mount either through our website, uh, literature, mm-hmm. from other seminarians and other priests. Some of the, the seminarians that might be more local here that uh, have either done pre-theology at Catholic University of America, for instance, they might have right. the opportunity to have been up here even over the last couple of years. But a lot of it, you know, a lot of it is either website, our literature, 
or particularly the other seminarians, the seminarians that are here and are talking to the seminarians that are, are maybe coming, or from their, their priests who are mountings as well that had gone through here. They're, they're our best billboards, if you will, our best advertisers. Mounties, is that what you refer to them as? Yes, yes. <laughs> so we call them Mounties. There's also, uh, this is kind of a little aside, but there's a, a breakfast sandwich that they have for breakfast. They also call them Mountie as well, but that's, it's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the history of Mount St. Mary's. Uh, I was there, as, a, as we said, a few years ago. It's a gorgeous campus. I know it's been around for a long time. It has. It's actually the second oldest university, the second oldest seminary in Catholic seminary in the country. Mm-hmm. It was founded by Father Dubois, who was a French immigrant, came over to the United States at the end of the 18th century, trying to escape really the persecution in France at the time. He started working in this area of Maryland, sent to this area by Bishop Carroll to care for the Catholics here. And he founded a small little parish church up on the hill right here in in Emmitsburg in 1805. He loved the area so much that he actually wanted to retire eventually here on this mountain. But in 1808, he really felt a real strong call to establish a seminary because there was only one seminary at the time, St. Mary's in Baltimore, and they needed a seminary to help prepare young men, Americans, that is young men from this area, from the United States, in order to enter into the theological studies down at St. Mary's. So he kind of founded a, a, a more prep school, what we would now call a college seminary, and even a minor seminary, even before college. So they had an education so that they could have enough education to enter into St. Mary's. So that was founded in 1808, right here on, on Mary's Mountain, as we call it. And eventually, Father Dubois became the third bishop of New York. So he then handed on everything to the other priests who were here. And eventually, the seminary continued to exist. And very soon after Father Dubois founded the seminary, he accepted young men who weren't really interested in becoming priests, but just wanted a good education. So that's how the college and then eventually university kind of grew, because more and more there were people coming that were were not seminarians, not interested in the seminary, and others were. So there was a distinction made between the two. They're all men, boys and men at the time. But eventually the college and then university just got larger and larger. And the seminary grew a little bit. We're now at 159 seminarians, but the university is about 1900 undergrad. So it's had a long prestigious history. Uh, We've had over 50 graduates from the Mount that have begun on to become bishops. And even one is now blessed. Blessed Stanley Rother was a 1963 graduate of the Mount. Beautiful. So it's, a, it's an illustrious, long history, uh, one that has served close to 100 dioceses uh, around the country and even some dioceses around the world. And there are some rather well-known graduates of Mount St. Mary Seminary uh, throughout the, her long history. And you're a national seminary, so you work with several dioceses around the country. When did you move from being, or, or was it always a national seminary? Uh, when did you move from being local to national? And, and, and how many are you working in now? How many dioceses? Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when that happened, because when mm-hmm. Father Dubois founded it, it was more for local men, sure. uh, local dioceses. But, you know, even in the middle of the 1800s, the middle of the 19th century, there were seminarians from various uh, dioceses around the country, from the South, from the West, from New England. And so it's always had that national kind of scope. 
Right now, we partner with 25 different dioceses uh, or religious congregations from around the country. Local dioceses, such as the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and we're in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, but also places like Lincoln, Nebraska, or Colorado Springs in Colorado, or Savannah, Georgia, Portland in Maine, for instance. So we have seminarians that uh, represent quite a, if you will, swath of our nation. And how is that dynamic when you get young men from different parts of the country coming together under one roof, all of them from different backgrounds and different cultures? Uh, what's that mix like? I imagine it, it adds for some creative and some lively discussions at times. Oh, it's, it certainly does, especially when it comes to football games. Let me tell you. <laughs> it does, because each of them come from a local church that's very unique and sometimes quite different one from the other. The different kinds of people that they serve, the different cultural backgrounds, the different, you know, way of life. You could come from a very, you know, intense inner city, northeastern diocese to a more country diocese in the Midwest. It's very, very different. I think it, it does tend to, to bring a, a little bit of a spice to our conversations and to our formation here. But ultimately, it's a good thing. It's good because each one of the seminarians then has to kind of stretch their understanding of the meaning of the church. It's uh, certainly local, always their own diocese, but they have to think too that the church is, is in other areas of both country and the world. Right now, we have two seminarians from uh, the United Arab Emirates. Now, this is pretty uh, amazing. We've been talking about politics recently. As, you know, we can understand why. Uh, of course, election. Yeah. <laughs> And <laughs> I said to one of these seminarians from the United Arab Emirates, I said, what's voting like in the United Arab Emirates? And he chuckled at me. He said, Monsignor, nobody votes for anybody in the United Arab Emirates. It's all a royal family. They control everything. No one votes at all. I've never voted in my life. Wow. So you can see there's, there's quite a, um, you know, a, a difference of, of cultural backgrounds. But what unites us, of course, is our faith, our Catholic faith, and their pursuit of the priesthood. It certainly opens up our minds and hearts to a, a church that's a, a wider than just our local church. Yeah, I can imagine. The curriculum, I'm sure, is not standard for every single seminary. I'm sure there's certain, obviously, there's certain truths that we all teach, you all teach as rectors in different seminaries, but are you seeing uh, the curriculum evolve at all for what is needed for a young man to become a priest today? That's part one of my question. Part two is, is that impacted at all by the fact that we have such a shortage of priests and more and more young men need to be ready to become a pastor probably sooner than when you were first ordained. So how, how is the curriculum and how is the training evolving? If you put your finger right on the issue, Jim, absolutely. We realize that some of these men will be pastors within a year or two of their ordination. Wow. And we've yeah. had that happen even most recently. And it might take a little bit longer for some, but they have to be ready sooner rather than later. I think when I was 17 or 18 years ordained is when I first became a pastor. But now most of these men will be pastors a lot sooner than that. So the curriculum has evolved in a variety of, of ways. I'd say, first of all, when it comes to being a pastor, you're really running a small business in some way. Right. So we've had to add on these kind of formation seminars, to help them understand some of the nitty gritty things about being a pastor, whether it's personnel management, financial management, et cetera. Just being able to handle some of those initial real concrete questions about the management of a parish. So that's something relatively new. And I don't think their predecessors ever had to even think about that here right. at the Mount. Another part of the curriculum that has changed a bit is the language studies. The great influx of uh, Hispanic Catholics that are present now and certainly into the foreseeable future 
means that these seminarians have to be prepared in every diocese, every diocese, to some extent, to be able to minister to the Hispanic community. So the introduction of Spanish courses of learning the language, the introduction of Spanish mass every single week in complete Spanish, and even the deacons giving part of their homily in Spanish. You know, these kinds of things would never have been much of a part of our formation when I, when I went through 30 years ago, but they very much are today. Another aspect, which is kind of interesting, well, maybe some of the courses have not changed. We still have, you know, scripture courses. We still have Christology. We still have the, the, the basic courses, but the emphasis within the curriculum has changed a bit in this sense. At least half, if not more, of the priests who are presently on staff have been pastors. Now, when I was going to the seminary, none of my priest faculty were pastors. And that's not a statement against them. It's just that at their age, they weren't expected to be pastors. Um, but now we have actually faculty members and professors who are priests. Seven or eight of us have been pastors before. So that brings not so much a change to maybe the structure or the names of the courses, but a new uh, pastoral emphasis within the course, whether it be through examples whether it be a better understanding of what really needs to be understood in this particular course, as opposed to other things that might be more extraneous, because this is something that you'll have to deal with as a pastor, questions that arise or kinds of people that you encounter. So some of that has changed the curriculum interiorly too. So there have been those adjustments over the years to kind of respond to the ever-changing needs of the, of the church. And in some cases, those young pastors will have a, an elementary school to work with or a high school, or they might be asked to be pastor of two parishes and have a, you know, a dual role there. I can imagine it would be quite challenging and, and probably, in some cases, very stressful to jump in within the first five years of ordination. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's in some way a change, too, in formation, because we realize that human formation is, is ever more important. And while intellectual formation is important and a big emphasis, and it's a privileged time of intellectual formation. But these human issues that you, you kind of touched upon, you know, can I deal with the stress, the anxiety? How do I continue to also maintain a good, strong prayer life? Right. Despite these responsibilities that are given to me at a very early age, that has also become a great emphasis in formation. It may not change, again, the intellectual curriculum, but it does change the formation as a whole, because we're looking for that. We're helping them to understand how to deal with those more human issues now so that they can approach their first pastorate, for instance, with more confidence. Well, it certainly does call all of us as laity to obviously, number one, pray for more vocations and pray for our young pastors who are taking on this huge role, but also just to, to be present to them, to be available to them, to, you know, whatever it is that they need so that they can be successful so that the entire parish can be successful. Yeah, um, and to support them too, give them that uh, the support that they need. It could also mean just sharing your gifts, an individual person's gifts, with the parish and with the pastor. The pastors are not the experts in, in everything, but more often than not, there is someone else who is, or at least has sure. a, a better understanding of it, and that may be their particular profession or education. Mm -hmm. Sharing those gifts and talents, as you well know, in a parish can be a huge help to a pastor and can actually help them, if you will, live longer and be more zealous as pastors, because Absolutely. then they, they can count on someone that can help them. Mm -hmm. I did notice that nationally there's an uptick in the number of diaconate vocations as well, myself included. I think you knew that. Yes. Um, that must be hopefully a help to the pastors as well, having that sort of support when there is an, an ordained priest available, at least an, an ordained deacon to assist in the parish. 
Yes, that's a great, great, incredible help because you not only bring the ministerial assistance as yep. an ordained you know, minister, a deacon, but also your own expertise and profession and experience mm-hmm. that you know, the priest may not at all have. And it could be a great benefit to the parish. Sure, sure. Tell us a little bit about um, what are you seeing in different dioceses around marketing? What are some of the more kind of switching gears here to um, marketing for vocations? You know, this is a, this, the, the younger generation is obviously, a, the, they're all, we're the digital immigrants. They're the digital natives. Isn't Native, that the way right, it is? Right. right so right. Uh, how are, how are you um, marketing or how are you seeing other dioceses marketing to successfully for vocations these days? Yeah, well, um, I'm going to hold up my iPhone. There it but is. All the information that they get is from this. Yeah. Which means that our website, for instance, for the seminary uh, was redone in such a fashion and in, a, in, a, in such a way that it looks actually better and is more useful on an iPhone than it necessarily is on a, on a computer. Oh, great. So that's just one area. We also know that as far as marketing and, and kind of getting the word out, videos, the shorter, the better. Young people are not exactly looking any longer at long brochures. If there is something, it's more pictures with a little bit of information, written information, rather than a lot of written information and a few pictures. You know, there's all these kinds of techniques that just appeal a little bit better to young people. However, I would also emphasize something that's very important that I've learned over the last number of summers. Here at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, during the summer, we host about 12 different groups, half of them being vocation promotion groups, such as Quo Vadis camps and Fiat camps. Right. Uh, I think many people know those to be you know, camps for, for high schoolers. Young people today not only need, but long for personal contact. It may be difficult, and especially in the COVID-19 days, but that kind of personal contact seems to impact them e- even more than anything else. They long for that contact. They may not be able to articulate it very well, but if they just hear the story, if they get to know a religious sister or a priest or you know a deacon, that makes a, a huge impact on them, something that they think about for a long time. And we know when, especially the younger seminarians start applying to the seminary and we see their autobiography, we always ask them to write their autobiography. We know that those instances really make a difference in their lives. Absolutely. How about fundraising, Monsignor? I, I would imagine that your donor base has got to be a national donor base and your development director must spend some time on the road, maybe not as much these days, but right. how is the seminary funded aside from tuition? Yeah, so tuition room and board is about about 80%, and it's about 20% other contributions, much of it an annual fund, but also some other funds as well, and some endowment. I'd like to do a lot more with endowment, to be honest with you. Right now, it's a little more difficult because the cash coming in needs to go right to operations because of COVID-19. You know, so it's about that. It's about 80, 80 to, to 20%. Now, often people don't realize that for seminaries, they think everything's kind of paid for. 80% means still, you know, 20% could be a significant and is a significant uh, amount of money to have to raise. So individual dioceses, when you contribute to the vocation appeal or bishop's appeal, diocesan appeal, and part of that will go toward the seminarian's tuition room and board, the seminaries still need your help. They need people's help to fill the rest of that gap. And as I said, endowments can be a great way to do that because it, it keeps, it's, a, it's a gift that keeps on giving, as you well know. It is a little bit of a struggle. However, I would say this, that I think we have found in, in most of the literature that I've, I've read and, and polls that I've seen, 
when people give to the church, giving for the sake of a vocation to the priesthood or religious life, that's really high on people's giving priority list. You, you would know this, Jim, better than I, but it's most true. people will say, that's really what I, I really like to give to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a, if you will, a, a popular item. We just have to type, tap in to people's giving and to help them to realize that we, we need your help. And every little bit can help a, a seminary and a seminarian. One of the wonderful things about being able to say this to people is to say that when you give to the seminary, you're giving for the future of the church. This priest, uh, who's now a seminarian, but soon will be a priest, uh, will touch thousands of souls. It's, an, if you will, an investment into the, the proclamation of the gospel to thousands of people throughout his lifetime as a, as a priest, maybe even you know, tens of thousands of people. Oh, absolutely. When we were together in the Diocese of Allentown, I did a survey because every year I would hear from the, we had 12 different case components that flowed into the diocesan Bishop's Annual Appeal, and everybody thought that theirs was the most popular. (laughs) And as the development director, it was difficult. You can't really push 12 cases for support all at the same time and equally. So I did a little uh, survey of our donors to find out, and I asked them to rank what, what was the ones that were most popular? Rank their top three. No surprise, number one was Catholic Charities because service to the poor is so part intrinsic to our Catholic identity. But both the retired priests, the support of our retired priests, and the support of seminarians were two and three, close very much at the top. And I think exactly for the reasons that you say, Monsignor, that people, they see our seminarians as a breath of fresh air, hope for the future. And again, that gift is multiplied times the thousands of people that they will impact in their lifetime. Monsignor, as we come to a close a little bit, I was wondering, can you share with us your own vocation story? How did you come to the decision or how were you led for your call to the priesthood? I always say my vocation story might be a little boring. (laughs) <laughs> but it does, I think, emphasize the fact that sometimes God can call very naturally and quietly. Yeah. I grew up in a very good, strong, solid Catholic home. Large family, as I think you know, there's 12 of us. My older brother is a priest. My parents were very supportive, certainly our Catholic faith. I went through all Catholic school, grade school, high school. And the idea of a vocation to the priesthood was supported by my parents and my family. And having an older brother who was in the seminary at the time didn't hurt. I think it was really the example of, of priests that got me to think about the priesthood. My mother tells me, God rest her now, when I was five years old, I don't remember this, but she said that uh, we came out of Sunday Mass w- one morning. I announced to the whole family on the way out of Mass that I wanted to be a priest, just like Father Kurtz, who we now know him as Archbishop Kurtz <laughs> uh, of Louisville. He was a young priest in my parish. He was yeah. fairly newly ordained. And I saw in him something that I thought God wanted me to be. And so from that moment on, I had a number of priests throughout grade school and high school that were just good priests to to me and to my family. I enjoyed altar serving. And we find that even seminarians today, a majority of them served at the altar. It was something that inspired me. I saw in the priest someone who was living a life of real sacrifice too. I saw that aspect as well, and yet was cheerful. And so I thought, well, how is that possible? Living a life of complete sacrifice, and yet they were very happy men. That was another factor that that led me to think that God wanted me to be a priest. And so when I got into high school, it was a a little bit awkward to start sharing with friends that you wanted to be a priest, because it was not exactly the most popular of things to say. Um, But I, I did find a few of my own classmates or others in high school that were thinking about it as well. 
And that was encouraging to me. We, we kind of formed a little group and some of the priests would meet with us on a regular basis and do just what I'm doing now, sharing our, our their vocation story with us. That was also an encouragement too, because I could see, well, if, if he can make it, if he can go through all of that, why can't I? Of course I could as well. So I entered the seminary right after high school. I thought I, I, I have to know, I have to know whether God is calling me to this life because I can't really live without knowing. This seemed to me, even at the time, and I was 17, it seemed to me to be what was going to ultimately lead to my own happiness and, and fulfillment. So I needed to know. So that's when I entered the seminary and, and never kind of really looked back after that. Monsignor, what can we as parents, we as laity do to encourage vocations? Good question. I would say several things. First of all, of course, pray. Pray for vocations. We must ask the harvest master to send out workers. Secondly, help your children see, understand, and respond to the call to holiness. Whatever their individual vocation might be, they're all called to be saints. So the more you really care for their spiritual welfare, the more that you help them live a sacramental life, to understand and respond to their faith, to give them opportunities to live a life of charity too, especially with the poor, to live the life of Christ and emphasizing the universal call to holiness. You don't even have to say, oh, you, you know, do you want to be a priest? Do you want to be a nun? Just simply doing that will help them better hear and understand what God wants of them. And I've said this to parents too. One important factor, honestly, is bring your kids to church every single Sunday. Don't make that an option. Right. It's a family thing, what you do as a family, and bringing them to Mass every single Sunday. Other things can be optional, other activities and sports, but make that a priority. And if you make it for your family life, it'll go a long way to help your children discern what God wants of them. And then put them into you know, these opportunities to discern, like as a fiat or, or a, a Quovadis camp. Help them to find and, and get to know a particular priest or religious sister, although that's a little bit more difficult these days. Sure. Um, just putting them into the, if you will, atmosphere, then uh, I think God speaks like he did to Elijah, sometimes in a whisper, but he will draw them. I think just doing those simple things of being a good parent and being interested in their eternal salvation, your own children's eternal salvation, that you're there not only to give them a good, comfortable life, put a roof over their head and make sure they have a, a good education, all those things are great. But ultimately, as a parent, you're there to help them get to heaven. Um, yeah. By doing that, oh, that's probably one of the greatest ways to promote vocations. I definitely see that as my number one job as a husband and a father. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the greatest gift we can give to our kids. Well, Monsignor, thanks for being on the podcast again today. It was terrific catching up with you. The same, Jim. Thank you so much. God bless. Okay. God bless. I want to thank Monsignor Baker for being on our show today. And if you'd like to watch the full video of our discussion, please visit episode 78 at advancingourchurch.com, where you'll find a complete library of all of our episodes. And I want to remind you that in December, you can find us here every week and join us live on Wednesdays at 4 p.m. for our new Facebook Live with my co-hosts Anna Vaez and Fred Roberts from Changing Our World. So I hope you'll join us. We have a new guest every week. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 
Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for over 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Good luck finding the person of Jesus in the people that are in your life and keep advancing the mission of our church. God bless everyone. Take care.